Um, Peter contacted me a, a couple months ago, I think, and asked if I would be willing to um, preach a sermon this month. And without looking at the schedule of what the topic was or the text, I told him what days I might be available. And so uh, we settled on today. And um, at the same time, then I learned what the topic was. And it it's not one I, I, I don't think I've ever chosen to preach on Judgment Day as, a, as something I was drawn to do. Um, but that's part of the benefit of being systematic in our study of God's Word, is it forces us to preach or to study things that are not our favorite topics, things that um, God has spoken, and they are real, they are true, but they may not be that appetizing for us initially, but they're always nourishing. They're always good for us. Uh, it reminded me of what I think is probably my first exposure to any awareness of divine judgment. And it happened when I was very young. I don't know if I was three or four years old, but very, very young. I remember sitting, looking at a book that we had in the house, and I was looking at the pictures because I couldn't read anything. But I saw in the pictures uh, this huge ship, and um, it was in a rainstorm. And then outside of that ship, there were people, um, some of them pounding on the hull of the ship and, and uh, obviously in distress. And there were men, women, and children all trying to get the attention or get into that ship. And I asked my mom, what is this? She said, that's the picture of Noah and the ark. And I said, well, what's happening? Uh, the, the people, they look like they're in trouble. Why doesn't Noah open the door? Why doesn't he let them on? Well, Noah didn't close the door to the ark. God closed the door, so Noah can't open it. Well, why doesn't God open it? Well, God gave them opportunity he, uh, the Bible says Noah preached to them. It, uh, they had the warning. They had the opportunity. And that, that was over. It's time for judgment. And I, I, look, I remember that. And just, you know, it, it, that was the end of the discussion. But I was left thinking that's, that's a, a sad picture. It's, it seems cruel. It seems like all the people changed their mind. You know, there's not anybody now that wouldn't accept some kind of deliverance. They're ready for deliverance, but it, the, the point that it was too late really stuck with me. Um, and, and now as we think of the, the, the subject of judgment, of, of the judgment day, I think many of us feel like, well, that, that seems cruel. It, it doesn't seem um, like a, a loving God would do that, and it doesn't seem like... Um, anything we would really be drawn to. Um, but we're going to read a passage today that is going to, at least some of it is going to sound very familiar. And it doesn't sound familiar as a negative thing. It will sound familiar as probably the iconic chorus of praise. And you'll know that as we read it together. But it's in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. So if you want to turn to that, We'll read it together. <clears throat> and as Gaylord referred to already, 
uh, an angel is blowing a trumpet, and obviously the announcement is very, very important. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. <clears throat> Obviously, you recognize that as part of the Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's Messiah. Um, you, you probably can't read it without hearing the tune as well as you read it. And it's, it's certainly a celebrated tune. It's not a mournful tune. It's not a dreaded tune. Because Handel knew that this declaration is a declaration of the, the righteousness of God being implemented, of the rightness of his rule, of his kingdom coming. It's also an answer to prayer. If we've prayed the Lord's Prayer, what have we prayed? We say, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's not our current condition, but it is a longing of us. We are asking for it. We, we are pleading with God to let his kingdom come and let his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's happening. That's the picture. That's the answer to the prayer Jesus told his disciples to be praying. So, of course, we ought to celebrate that. We ought to celebrate that God's kingdom is coming. We... We often think, well, there, there's a cruelty to a permanent and eternal justice or judgment that God promises to bring. And sometimes we, we respond to that by, by several things. We might say, well, um, maybe it's really not going to happen. Maybe it's not true. Maybe that's, that's not... Um, it's, it's just I misunderstood the Bible or it's not I, somebody told me that but it was fabricated by, by my teacher or they wanted to scare me but the, if, you, if you read Jesus' words if, first of all if you believe that there was a man who came who was born of a virgin if you believe that he came at all and history is undeniable that he existed that he lived and taught that he died, and the, the proof of the resurrection is in the, the martyrdom of the followers and, and many other things, but not the least of which is the fact that people asserted his resurrection to the point of their own death. So if they were lying about it, they were fools to sacrifice their own life for someone who they were lying about that he resurrected. Of course, there, there can be uh, um, people who are skeptical of that, but I think the evidence is clear. So if that's true, let's go back now before we get off the track here. Let's go back that if it's true that Jesus was 
who he said he was and that he represented God and spoke for God and spoke God's will, then if we listen to what he said, we cannot deny that judgment is coming. It's, it, it concludes many of the parables. Remember the phrases, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that that, that was the result of servants who disobeyed or who were not obedient to, to the commands of their master or cast into outer darkness or the warnings of Jesus about our hands and our eyes where he says it's better for you to enter into life to cut off your hand if it offends you so that you enter into life with one hand rather than have two hands to be cast into hell so I'm, I'm not saying this without the the compelling words of Jesus that he indicated there is a final judgment Um, but in our hearts even though we resist the idea of a final judgment we all ask for some judgment at least sometimes and it comes up when we feel an injustice has happened because there there's really no justice without judgment of what's wrong um The last time you were cut off in traffic, did you hope that a police officer was watching and was going to punish that person who cut you off and insulted you, made you feel like you're not important because they wanted that lane right now? Or the, the last time you saw a world event that evoked some sadness or grief in you, when you heard about a tower that collapsed, a, a, a tower of, um, of condominiums in Florida that collapsed, and uh, at, at last count, over 150, I don't even know what the latest count is of people that instantly their life was gone. Did you not think something's wrong with that picture? The closer it hits to our life, the more, the more sharply we feel that. And we, we feel the loss. You, you feel it if you get a phone call, an alarming phone call of an accident or someone that you love that was instantly taken from this life. You get that feeling that something's wrong when you get news from the doctor who says um, it's cancer, it's stage four, it's terminal. Or you, you get that news when... Um, when you watch the news and you see that millions of people um, have died in the last 18 months from a disease that we have been unable to, to completely eradicate, though we're thankful that there, there are less restrictions. We're thankful that we can be here together, that we can gather, that the Lord is giving us that grace. But it's a reminder that every one of us has an appointment with death every one of us and and maybe that image um, that that memory of the last 18 months or so is punctuating that for us it's almost as if we kind of thought death was not coming until it stared us in the face and was reported to us every day on the news and by the way Probably a lot more people in the last 18 months have died of many other things than of of the COVID virus. It's another one of those things that may take our life, but something will. 
We don't know all the numbers every day, but I can tell you the percentage of us that will die. It's not hard to figure out. It's 100, and every one of us, it's a one-to-one ratio. So that certainty is, is something that, that points us to the need and the longing for something to fix what's broken. We, we feel that brokenness, and we long for the remedy, just like David did. Um, in Psalm 5, he said, and this was a, a, because of a wrong against him, he said, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth, Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So a personal offense to us makes us want justice, makes us want God to judge rightly. Um, When... When he does that, when he judges rightly, he will ultimately have to punish the wrongdoers. That is what right and wrong constitutes. What is broken has to be fixed. We can go back in the Bible's record of what was broken. It was broken in the Garden of Eden, when in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible describes how the man and the woman who were created without flaw were put in a place without flaw and without sin, were told what to do and what not to do, and were tempted to say, well, we want to do our, our thing instead. We're tempted to rebel and to say, I'm going to make that decision of right and wrong for myself. I'm not going to be told what to do. And they they went forward with that plan and we are living in the results of that plan so we are living in a condition in a a world that is in rebellion against our creator all of us as and as descendants of adam and eve belong to that rebellious world the the bible says because of that the the judgment that is coming is unavoidable. That, that even though we, we can try to do things to get out of it, it, it will happen. And it will happen by a righteous judge. Not, not just like the, the justice that humanity uh, will try to, to implement. And we, I, I, don't, I don't complain about that. I think that the justice system does the best it can. I hope it does. Um, with the, the facts that are laid out before it, with, with the, um, the um, investigation that's done about motives and actions that were wrong and that resulted in a bad result, resulted in, in a death or a crime, that... Justice is pursued, and um, we hope it prevails. But what's imperfect about that is that uh, the, the jury or the judge can't see the heart of the defendant, can't 
know all the circumstances, can't know all that was happening, can't exercise perfect justice because it's a human court and it's limited in its vision. But God, who has perfect vision, perfect understanding, exercises perfect justice. And so that's the reason that we rejoice at his coming, that we rejoice at him being in charge, at him being the king, at him exercising justice perfectly so that every offense ever committed against us has a, a, has a result, has a righteous result. So as we look at that, and we know it's unavoidable, part of us says, part of our heart, I think, says, well, that's good. That's good that everyone who's offended me and everything that's ever been done to me, every wrong that's ever been done, and even the hardship I've suffered is somehow going to be made right. But when we take a little bit closer look, something about that is pretty scary. Because even though many people may think we're good, and, and maybe by the measure that we use for each other and even for ourselves, we are good, right? I do, mostly I do good things. I make moral choices that benefit others. I try to be selfless. I try to, and all of those things, as we measure ourselves, we, we might try to say, I'm pretty good. But the problem is that a righteous and perfect judge is actually going to look in our heart and in our behavior, and he's going to say, well, you're actually one of the rebels, Actually, in your heart, your selfishness has been the offense that I'm trying to make right in this person's life and in this person's life. And by the way, your offense against me is that you have not done what I said. Even in the very first commandment I gave to love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, have you done that? Or if we go through that list of commandments and we, we look at ourselves and compare ourselves to each one of those I don't know what your score is, but mine's pretty bad. And so when I think the perfect judge is coming and perfect righteousness is coming, I'm in deep trouble. The Bible says of that condition, of that situation, <clears throat> O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? That's in Psalm 130, verse 3. I, I, I have to affirm that verse. I have to say that verse is right. If it's, if it's applied to me, that is true. Can I stand before a righteous God? In, in uh, our text today, John is referring back to a, a psalm in verse 18 when he says, the nations raged... He's echoing the words of Psalm number two, where the, the entire psalm talks about the rage of the nations against God, the rage of the nations that say, we're going to burst your bonds, we're not going to obey you, we're not going to do what you say. And that, that psalm says it this way, the nations rage and said, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us, the things that are controlling us. We do not want God to control us so the nations have raged against God, and we have raged against God. We have wanted to do things our own way. So when we 
when we see that judgment is coming, when we read it in the Bible, we have a few choices how to respond to that. We, we can say, I don't believe that there, there is a God. We can say, I don't believe that there's a God who will, who will do that, that he, that he would be that harsh or that cruel. Or we can say, I'm pretty good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try. I'm going to stand on my own merits before that, that court of justice. One of the people um, that, that I want to refer to, um, you may not have heard of him. I think this is a pretty old poem, but it's from the best loved poems of the American people. I've had this book for many years, and I like to page through it, and I come across gems sometimes. And this is, this is a gem in that it speaks the heart of many people. It's called Invictus. And if, if you're old like me, you probably have heard it. If you're young, maybe not. I don't know. But this is what William Ernest Henley says. And he's talking about his approach to the final judgment. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's a strength of character that, that we almost admire in that, right? That somebody's not going to uh, use a crutch. They're standing on their own ground, and they're standing uh, with their own resolve and their own will. But the Bible says that to, to be our own advocate, and paraphrasing, to be our own advocate is to be foolish to think that we can represent ourselves before a perfect God and win is to simply um, deceive ourselves to think that that we can on our righteousness no matter how great it is no matter how much we compare ourselves to others and say I'm, I'm so much better than the people I see around me we, we will not win that. And so, in this sense, all of us, based on our own um, status, are condemned. Based on that alone, we are condemned. And, and the words that God has for us in that condition are, are really pretty profound. Psalm 7 says, God has bent and readied his bow, he has prepared for the sinner his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And look at that picture. Imagine that picture. The God of heaven has his bow with his, his bow bent and his arrow pointed at me as his enemy, because that's who I am. Because I have held to what I was born in as a rebel against him. 
no matter how good my life might look. It says I am under that punishment, under that judgment, and it is only withheld by his mercy. And so, in that, I should actually be trembling at the knowledge of his judgment of me. I shouldn't be casual about it. There should be no... It's, it's such a, a ridiculous thing to joke about our eternal condition. And yet, it's common, right? It, it, it maybe makes us soften our view of it. It makes it not so real. But there's nothing uh, humorous about it. It's a condition that God says will be eternal and irreversible. And so as that reality sinks in, and as we base that reality or that knowledge on the word of God, we look for a remedy. And that is actually the intent of the warnings. The warnings are not given just to hound us and to to prematurely give us a, a sense of depression or um, a, a sense of dread. They're, they're not given to us so that it will um, happen so that we, we get just a we, we just get a preview of what our future holds, what our eternity holds. God is not cruel to do that. He gives us those warnings out of his love. He says, <clears throat> he says in Ezekiel 33, um, I have no pleasure, says the Lord, in the death of the wicked, but let the wicked turn from his wickedness and live. His desire is that we live. The warnings are for life. The warnings are towards redemption. They are not towards destruction. He's not glorying in his ability to destroy us. He is longing for our salvation. What's the proof of that? Well, how could there be more proof that God who created the world and watched it rebel became the only solution by his very death so that he came here not to condemn us but to save us. I came not into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus said to Nicodemus. The, the invitation, the love of God is pictured in so many ways in Scripture. But if we deny the judgment that's coming, first of all, we fail to heed the warning for ourselves. But if we do heed the warning for ourselves, but then somehow we soften the judgment that's coming, I think it really affects our desire to evangelize. I think it really affects our compelling mandate, the command of God, and the, the love that should be in us for those that don't know him. Not so that we can pound on them. There's no reason to do that. But so that we can say, this is out of love, I tell you this. If, if your house was on fire, and I walked past and said, well, I, I don't want to bother them. They're probably asleep. It's the middle of the night. I'm not going to wake them up. They would be disturbed by me waking them up. But their house is on fire. The, it, it's, it's a picture of, of us just 
for, for the, the sake of not disturbing a relationship today, we will not address the eternity of the person we're talking to. Do I love someone enough that I'm willing to risk that relationship to tell them about the judgment that's coming? It's not easy to do. It's not even easy to do from here. But this part is the good part. This is from Isaiah. <clears throat> come everyone who thirsts. Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. <coughs> There's a response to Invictus in the same book, and you probably haven't heard this one. But Dorothea Day wrote a, a, a poem that comes from her perspective. And she wanted to um, tell a different part of, uh, a different story. She wanted to approach death with a different attitude. And this is what she said. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate, he cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. So the invitation is as certain as the declared judgment. From the same voice, from the same authority, from the same man who said, who came from God to, to represent the will of God, to die for us, from that one come the words that he said to Nicodemus that we all probably memorized, many of us memorized from our youth. <clears throat> for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as certain as the judgment, so certain is the salvation. And that salvation, if you hear my voice, if you hear this word, if the Holy Spirit convicts you and makes you fearful of the judgment, he does so with the loving purpose to bring you to himself. So that on this side of the grave, you reconcile with your Creator. You bow before the one who made you. You become a friend rather than a rebel to his kingdom 
and you become a citizen forever and ever of his kingdom. Next week, Peter will tell us more about that part. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been gracious to tell us about the judgment that is coming. We thank you that you will rule with perfect righteousness, that you will judge with perfect righteousness. We thank you that even in our own hearts, you will make right what is wrong, but you will do it by the redemptive work of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that work, and we trust in that work, and we pray for everyone who is here, who, who hears this message, and who, who is convicted that they are not ready for that judgment. Lord, make it clear by your Spirit that you are calling them, that you want them to be yours, that you are simply asking that they bow before you and not before themselves, that they stand on your righteousness, not, not their own righteousness, that they come to you bankrupt, but ready to receive. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name.